Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today's lesson from the book of Daniel is the final lesson of this fabulous Old Testament book. For the last 56 Sundays, class teacher Doug Brady has dug deeply into the book of Daniel and has brought us understanding of this very deep and important book of prophecy. Today, Doug wraps up this study with a final look at the 12 chapters of the book of Daniel, reminding us of the massive amounts of information that we have discovered over the past year. Doug has titled this lesson, Daniel, the Man and His Book. You will certainly enjoy this final look at the book of Daniel. Now, before he began the lesson for today, he let us in on the plans for the next study, which will begin next Sunday. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Nearly 150 people were in attendance today, and we continue to grow. We would certainly welcome you if you are able to visit our class. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin this lesson. Here now is our longtime friend, Doug Brady. Today is our last day in Daniel. It almost seems to me like we're leaving an old friend. We started back in March of 2021. Not 22, but 21. It's been quite a journey since then. And many of you have changed your mind on something. Frank mentioned, what's your favorite book in the Bible now? I love Daniel, and it's going to be like leaving an old friend. But you know, God does those kind of things, and I think we will find excitement in the future. But it seemed to me, we've seen Daniel mature from a young teenage boy to a seasoned senior citizen. We've seen him navigate from satanic trap uh, to demonic ambush over and over again, and along the way, We received some of the most far-reaching prophecies anywhere in the Bible. And, yes? Can I I ask you a question? What what, what do we start next week? Good question. I was debating whether to say something about that right now. Let me ask you this, Hayes. Was there a time when America was a Christian nation? No, wait, I'm asking Hayes. (laughs) (laughs) This is not phone a friend. What's your answer? Was there a time when, when America was a Christian nation? Yes. I mean, we're Christians individually. But I mean, what did the Supreme Court say? Yeah. It is. Said it was. But now, would you describe earlier justices? Yes. Later justice, not a chance. Especially like Earl Warren and Nwetna. You're getting me into that. Now, right now, would you describe America as a Christian nation or a pagan nation? 
Now, Hayes is having trouble answering, and most attorneys do. They don't like to be cross-examined. But the fact is, we are definitely living in a pagan nation right now. Anyone who says we are a Christian nation right now is seriously out of touch. So I thought through the scriptures, is there a situation where a nation was a godly nation and then switched and became a pagan nation and you have a believer who now has to live and abide in that new pagan nation. And I found just such a place. It's the northern kingdom of Israel after the split, you know, whenever you have like a civil war or a split of a nation, you can almost usually count on the north being bad. (laughs) And it was. They had 21 kings. Each and every one of them were evil. Each and every one of them. But there was a godly man who was living in a little town of Tishbe, and God called him to say, let's change this from a pagan nation. And his name was Elijah. And so we're going to spend about nine weeks on Elijah. Then, where are we going after that? Hayes, I have another question for you. Does the law consider statements that a person makes right before he's dying to have a greater chance of validity than anything else? They're called dying declarations. Yes. Well, probably within three to four weeks... After Paul wrote 2 Timothy, his last book, the Romans killed him. This is his dying declaration to Timothy. And we're going to study probably about 30 to 35 lessons on 2 Timothy. I think you will be amazed at the depth of that book as everything from Paul's life is gathered together there. If you think about it, who was the greatest missionary to ever live? Who was the greatest theologian to ever live. Normally, you think, well, you know, if you're a theologian, you're not going to be a very good missionary. And if you're a missionary, you're not going to be a very good... Here is the perfect amalgamation of those two. And so that's where we are going. Good question, Hayes, even though your answers weren't too good. We're going to look back one more time at Daniel. And we're going to try and see what is involved in this man's life, in this man's prophecies, in this man's book. But before we do, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to study, the opportunity to understand, the opportunity to learn. Help me, Father, to be faithful in my studying and the time that I allocate for that. And as we move forward in these new exciting ideas that you've given me, I pray that you will show us what it is that you want us to see and how to stand and be men and women of conviction. At the same time, Father, as we look back, help us to recollect what we've learned from this great book, Daniel, and to see one more time how you moved everything together. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we first met Daniel, he was a young man. And when I say young man, 15, 16, 17 years old. You know, I I try to think back, what kind of maturity level did I have at that age? Kathy, don't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) But we see him with his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And we normally think the time 
that time in a young man's life is for making mistakes and learning from them. But you look at these young men's lives and you find that there is no characteristic in a young man's life that is more winning than the demonstration of wisdom in both deed and word. And that's the way that these four young men reacted. You think about it. They had been taken from their homes and their families. They'd been stripped of their self-esteem and made slaves of the state. And yet, they were willing to wait and take full advantage of the opportunities God was going to give them and provide them. And sometimes he has to do that to us, strip us of those things, so that he can put us in a place where we really have the opportunity to serve him. Now, they are dealing with the most powerful king in the world. I want you to think of this just a second. Put yourself in a very, very scary position. And one where you would, might tend to feel fear. But if Jesus is standing right next to you, are you going to be scared? But he is even when you can't see him. And these men learn to be fearless in very special ways. You see, they learned early on, number one, you stand together no matter what. You stand together as spiritual compatriots no matter what. Number two, they learn to refuse to compromise on spiritual issues and values. Refuse to compromise. Well, you don't weigh the cost? No. You don't consider the cost. You refuse to compromise on spiritual values. And you trust the Lord to take care of you. And it's his choice. You know, I have a young man who's very close to me who two weeks ago left to go back to Korea. They, they let him back in. And he has to face these kind of questions of whether he will compromise or not. Uh, he's going to be in the South to start with, but he's going to do everything he can to get into the North. Because that's where God has called him. And I thought, as he explained to me, he said, Dad, God has given me such a love in my heart for those people in the north. How could I go anywhere else? I don't have that kind of... He does. Now, one of the things that we were able to learn from these four young men is that if you want to live a life of non spiritual compromise, there will be certain attributes that will be demonstrated in your life if you're not going to compromise, if you're going to live an uncompromising life. The first one is that you're going to speak and you're going to act with unashamed boldness. Unashamed boldness. Daniel was like, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food, is what he told Arioch. I'm not going to do that. Also, you're confident in unearthly protection that it's God's responsibility to protect me, not myself. And if he wants to take me home, then I'm ready to go. He'll carry on with unhindered persistence. Spiritual non-compromisers and spiritualists don't quit. They don't give up. They don't shade things. They have unhindered persistence. They adopt in their lives an uncommon standard. Their life is controlled by an unblemished faith. They're not unprepared for testing. In fact, they know they will be tested over and over. But they become the recipient of unlimited blessings, and you have an immeasurable influence as a result of a non-compromising life. Just think about that last one for a second. An immeasurable. Think about the influence the book of Daniel has had on you. 
That's because that boy chose to live an uncompromising life and allow God to use him. Then, in chapter 2, we saw these four guys in a panic situation. Now, when I say panic situation, I'm not saying they were panicking, but I'm saying that it would be a normal situation for someone to panic. They came to learn that all the wise men were going to be killed. They'd just been sentenced to death. They didn't know anything about it. Daniel was finally, it was finally explained to Daniel just why this edict came down from King Nebuchadnezzar that much more tenured wise men had not been able to satisfy him on explaining a dream that he had had. Daniel and his friends, they had nothing to do. And yet their lives hung in the balance. What were they going to do now? And Daniel said, take me to the king. And he got that audience. And he promised that he would return and be able to share with the king both the dream and its interpretation. Now, did Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah, any of them know the dream or its interpretation when he made that promise to the king? But who did they know? The one who gives the dreams. And so, they came back and they started a season of prayer. And I thought of something this week. If you were to look in Daniel chapter 2, it does not tell you the prayer of petition that they made to God. We got to know this, God. They're going to kill us if they don't. Please reveal the dream to us. Please give us the interpretation. That prayer, we don't know what was said. But after God gave them the interpretation with the dream, then there's this beautiful prayer of thanksgiving. He doesn't tell us about the petition. He only tells us about the prayer of gratitude. But that have some meaning as to God's perspective. It's more important not how you ask, but how you thank Him when He answers. And so we saw that in Daniel's life as he then went and told the king how powerful his God was. Well, Satan doesn't like that. And he doesn't like the power of God being demonstrated to people he believed was his, like Nebuchadnezzar. So he said, you know what? I'm going to divide them. Daniel must be the star here. I'm going to separate these other three from Daniel, and I'll take them out first and leave Daniel alone. And so you remember, Nebuchadnezzar built a golden image and required everybody to bow down and worship it. And if you did not, it meant death. Would these three on their own compromise? Let me read to you the conversation between these three, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Nebuchadnezzar the king. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, he doesn't give them a chance to answer. I don't think he wants to hear their answer right yet. He says, now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the musical instruments, fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Do you think these three young men felt the presence of their Lord standing next to them, and therefore no need to fear. To me, I have to answer yes, 
because of the tenor of their answer. When they said, O king, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now notice that phrase where they say, and he will deliver us out of your... Did he know that they would come back? Did they know that they would come back out of the fiery furnace? They didn't know that. They knew that God was going to take care of them. I wonder, do you think they they were in that furnace with Jesus for about an hour? How do I know that? Because it would have taken about an hour for that furnace to cool down enough where Nebuchadnezzar could come and look inside. Remember what happened to the guards who threw him in? I don't think Nebuchadnezzar wanted that to happen to him. So, do you think there was ever a discussion, you know, instead of going back, Jesus, why don't we just go back with you? Instead of going out, why don't we just go back with you? Do you think that, well, there's going to come a time at the marriage supper in the Lamb, we learned at our end of this book, where you can talk to Hannah and I, Michelle and Ezra, and ask what it felt like. And I think what they will tell you was, Doug, it was cool in the furnace. And Satan failed again. So this time he decided to shift. You know, this king is getting close. I got to go after this king. And so in chapter 4, he's going to go after Nebuchadnezzar. And he used pride in his heart that was evidenced by his arrogance as a dominating factor in his life. But someone else had his eye on King Nebuchadnezzar. And our Lord God intended to use Satan's motivations, turn the hearts, the king's heart, towards the one true God. So God sent Nebuchadnezzar another dream, this time a warning of what would happen if that arrogance continued. And although he heard and understand the warning, his pride became had become too deeply rooted in his soul. And as a type of spiritual surgery, it was going to have to be removed. But in order to achieve that goal, insanity was decreed for the king. And for seven years, he lived and acted like an animal. I don't think there's anybody here who could know for certain exactly what it would be like. Now, some of you wives may be wanting to say something about that, that's what you're living with, but don't please... (laughs) One day, I believe at the marriage supper of the land, you'll be able to talk to King Nebuchadnezzar and ask him what that was like. Because he will be there. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson did not share the same fate. Why not? What's the difference? Well, let's look into that a second. You see, Belshazzar also developed the same kind of pride that his grandfather had. Absolute authority tends to give birth to that kind of pride. But his pride not only caused him to admire himself and what he could do, it caused him to challenge Almighty God. That is a serious mistake. And there comes a time when our Lord no longer views such challenges as a trifle, as he was using the Lord's golden implements to drink to his gods and participate in the debauchery that was going on at that orgy. So God sent Belshazzar a message. 
It was as if the hand of God reached out of the sleeve of night and pinned four words of doom to the drunken king. Mene, mene, tikel ufarsin. They had no idea what that meant. He called everybody he knew to come and explain to him. And so, as he, as he went on, finally Daniel came. And Daniel was brought before him. And he said, let me tell you, you have been weighed in God's balances and you have been found wanting, O King Belshazzar. And your kingdom is going to be divided tonight between the Medes and the Persians. And you will die. That very night, God took the kingdom of Babylon and handed it over to Cyrus, the king of Persia. And Cyrus put in, installed a man by the name of Darius, a Mede, to, to govern that province now of the kingdom of Persia. You know, it's interesting, as a result, Daniel found himself no longer in the employ of the Babylonians. But all of a sudden, he was in the same employ and caught on quickly with the Persians. And soon Daniel, as he had been to the Babylonians, proved his value when entrusted with the duties of government service. It may have been that he proved too valuable because his fellow public servants began to detest him and do some re- find out some way to get rid of him because he was too honest. I guess I could make some comments about that in modern day situations, but let's move on. You see, they tried to find accusations they could make against him for lack of faithfulness or lack of integrity, but they always came up empty. And then they realized that there was only one soft spot in his armor, and that was his commitment to God. So they hatched a plot to do Daniel in. If he prayed to his God, he would have to be put to death. But just like when he was 15, here as an old man, he was not about to compromise on spiritual issues. He could have just closed the blinds where they couldn't see him. But no, he wasn't about to do that either. Not a stitch of compromise in this man's heart when it came to his Lord. And their plot was successful. And he was placed in the lion's den for the evening so that they could destroy him, never to return. But they failed to take into account Daniel's God was real and that he takes care of his own And soon those men became the main course of the lion's feast. And we began to see all of these things. And it may very well be that Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, and Darius became true believers as a result of Daniel's witness. What a move. You know, if there's a passage that maybe epitomizes his life in this book, I would focus on Daniel 5.12. And that's when he was going to go in and speak to uh, Belshazzar. And he says this, This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems was found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be something, and he will declare the interpretation of his dream. So let's look back just a second on some of the accomplishments we find in his life. I chose four accomplishments to talk about for just a minute. The first one was, although he was quite young when he was deported, he remained true to his faith. Now I want you to see this in his life. 
And I want you to under, come to understand something that I think a lot of you are coming to understand. I don't know if you've ever run a marathon. I have not. I have helped someone run a marathon before. And you start, you get there at the start and you watch all these people take off. And they're excited and everybody's running and this is great. Then after a few stops on, in between and you come to the finish line and you see these people, there's no excitement anymore. They are dragging. They are exhausted. They are at their wit's end, but they have one thing in mind. I got to make it to that finish line. Life as a believer is kind of like that. And you have to understand that it's not just how you start, but how do you finish? Do you finish strong or do you lose heart and quit? If you think about people who have been involved in public ministry, I guess I'm in trouble all the time anyway. You look at our church, you look at a man by the name of Joel Gregory. Started strong, finished horribly weak and wrong. But I think that point is not to consider other people's lives, but instead to consider our life. Are we going to finish strong or not? Or will we lose heart and quit? Yes. I think Scripture says, if it wasn't for the grace of God, there would go I also. That is true, but it's refusing to compromise and applying that grace, that power, and recognizing it comes from outside, from inside and not outside. Sometimes when you're successful, Tim, it makes great difficulty. You start thinking it's you and not him. Yes? Happening right now, also all over the country, people are falling away from the church. They're saying... You're right. The Bible's not being preached. And our prophets are not standing up and pointing out sin. Yes. What was his question? His question was, isn't it the same as, but for the grace of God, we would do the same thing. But it has to do with the tenor of our faith, I think. Will we continue to trust Him? Or not. Sometimes it gets very difficult and very hard. We tend to get scared. Yes. A distinction would be is your devotion or extrinsic? Do you do like Job as Satan asked God, does he serve you for nothing? Was his faith intrinsic or extrinsic? Same with Joseph, same with Abraham. Did you hear that? It was the faith based on extrinsic things or intrinsic. God inside. And that's the key. Let's look at number two. Number two was this. He served as a trusted and valued advisor to two Babylonian kings and two Persian kings. Why? Because of what Don just said. They saw in him that intrinsic operation of the Holy Spirit and God on him. The same way that Pharaoh looked at Joseph say, why not choose this man? He's got the spirit of the holy gods involved in him. Number three, he was a man of fervent prayer. And he combined with that being a statesman with a gift of prophecy. And fourthly, at the end of his career, he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that God considered him to be a man of high esteem when he spent the night with him in the lion's den. Now, There's several lessons, important lessons, I think, from his life that we ought to consider before we move on. Number one, quiet convictions 
often earn long-term respect. Quiet convictions often earn long-term respect. Secondly, one should never wait until he's in a tough situation to be well-practiced in prayer. You shouldn't wait. Three, God will one way or another put you where he wants you to be. I want you to think about this from this perspective just a second. I thought about this this week. Let's say you go back in time, and right before this first deportation in 606 B.C., you walked into the house of Daniel's mother and father. And you said, there's going to be some young men, possibly your son and some of his friends are going to be deported and made state slaves over in Babylon. I'm going to give you a choice. You can have your son stay here with you and live in your home, marry the woman you've selected for him, and participate in the life that you and he has planned for himself. Or you can let the Babylonians take him, and he will become the most trusted advisor of King Nebuchadnezzar. He'll be instrumental in introducing him to the Lord God of Israel. Subsequently, he will advise his grandson, Belshazzar. He'll become the trusted prime minister of Babylon under Darius the Mede when the Persians take over. He'll introduce Darius to the Lord God of Israel. He will become the most valued advisor of Cyrus, emperor of Persia. He'll introduce him to the Lord God of Israel. And he will be instrumental in obtaining the return of the Jewish people to their land. And that they be given the utensils and implements that Nebuchadnezzar stole from the temple to take back with them. Who do you think his parents would choose? The first or the second? Well, if you examine Daniel's life, you'll know that had to come from his parents. Now, let's step back and look at some prophecies. The first prophecy in this book was told us in chapter 2. It was given to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream that he foretold the future. God gave Daniel the interpretation of that dream. The prediction of the four empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, has come to fruition, and we've seen those. But it left two unaccounted for. The empire of the ten toes, and then the rock. The toes predict the ten-nation or kingdom confederacy that will rule the world at the end of time. And the rock pictures the kingdom that begins with a thousand-year reign. The kingdom of the Son of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It comes into existence without the aid of human hands. And our kingdom, our king will rule with a rod of iron. Let's just stop just a second. Without the aid of human hands. Do you hear any preachers, any evangelists, any church leaders who say, we need to work to bring in the kingdom. And we should be about the kingdom's work. That's anti-biblical. Oh no, how can you possibly say? Well, because the Bible says without human hands, who give In chapter 7, you're going to see one person gives that kingdom to one person. It's the ancient of days, turns it over to the Son of Man, and human beings have nothing to do with it. And I'm sorry if you want to say, I'm about kingdom purposes and I'm preaching the gospel of the kingdom. There is a kingdom that's probably motivating you to do that, but it's not the one you're thinking of. All right. The next one is chapter 7. It's going to reiterate what was prophesied in chapter 2. It's going to have the same predictions, and yet it's going to have more detail. You'll see those four kingdoms again. Babylon, 
Persia, Greece, and Rome. But this time, instead of ten toes, it's ten horns. And this time, you'll see a little horn emerging from the head of that beast. And that little horn is introduced as the Antichrist. And we begin to see him. But we also learn that the rock is now referred to as the Son of Man. And he receives his kingdom from the Ancient of Days. Now let me tell you, that prophecy contains one of the most important statements in the entire Old Testament of the fact of the Trinity. You know, Jewish people deny there's a Trinity. And yet here you have the Ancient of Days delivering a kingdom to the Son of Man. Can we be certain who the Son of Man is? Oh, absolutely. When Jesus was on trial, what did He call Himself? The Son of Man. And when you see Him coming in the clouds, and they said, stone Him, He's blaspheming. Well, He is claiming to be God. It's just that His claim was true and not false, and therefore not blasphemy. And we begin to see that important statement. Then Daniel got another vision in chapter 8. This was a more focused vision, uh, less general. It spoke of a ram and a goat, and the prophetical focus that God gave him narrows. And it's a prophecy describing the future of Persia and Greece. And they're both pictured, Persia as the ram, and Greece as the goat. But out of the goat comes one we came to be to learn was Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV prefigured the Antichrist. Even down to an abomination of desolation that he instituted in the temple. And we saw all of these things so minutely fulfilled in the records of history that it was obvious. Well, to the unbeliever, it was obvious this couldn't have been a prophecy. It was too exact, too accurate. And so they wanted to say it was written afterwards. We know it's not. Whether you're looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Septuagint, all of those things will show you that's the case. And then we came to what I used to think was the most magnificent prophecy in the entire book, and that was the 70 weeks of Daniel. And we learned that God decreed from the issuing of a royal decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the end of the Jewish dispensation would be 490 years. We came to learn the Jewish dispensation is not over because there was an interval now in which there was a different dispensation, the dispensation of the church, the one we are living in. But when that dispensation of the church ends, then there's going to be seven more years of the Jewish dispensation. Damaris, what event ends that church dispensation? The rapture. The event we can't wait for. The event we long for. The event that's going to be so wonderful. And that will happen. The Messiah, Daniel predicts in this, will be presented to his people and they will reject him. The Jews couldn't believe that. There's no way we would reject someone we've waited so long for and that we've so longed to have. And then the Messiah not only be rejected, he'll be killed. And that the Antichrist will arise from that fourth beast. And he will claim the temple of Elohim to be his own. And he will. Then we go back in chapter 11, the start to Antiochus. 
and this prefigured beast. It provides us even more information about what he's going to do and greater insight into the doings of Antiochus and how he will fight wars that ravage Israel and how he'll try to force Hellenization upon her. But in the end, there will be a godly uprising that was led by Judas Maccabeus. And the temple, which Antiochus had desecrated, will be restored and rededicated to the worship of Yahweh. And we saw that that prefigured the fact that the Antichrist is going to desecrate the third temple, the uh, tribulation temple. And he will set up his own abomination of desolation in that temple. And then it also will be cleansed and rededicated to the worship of the Most High. And it's so exciting to be able to see that. Then came the final part of the vision. The last vision of the book. The one that so many scholars seem to know so little about. And we see Gabriel explain that Israel will be attacked by Satan and how she will be protected by her prince. And in fact, as I did a little search, do you know that Michael is the only one in the entire Bible who's designated as an archangel? Someone said, well, Gabriel else. Well, Gabriel has a very high... He's never called the archangel, an archangel. And it may be that there is only one. Now, Satan would like to add others to the list because he loves to falsify information. But... The Bible says Michael is the archangel and that Michael one day will be stronger than Satan and Satan will lose. Daniel in this final prophecy explains how the wrath of God will be used to refine and to purify and to purge his people. It will not be a pleasant time and only a third of them will make it through. But God is going to bring His people back to Him just as He has promised. And then at the end of this vision, He talks about an interval. An interval of 75 days. And we spend a great deal of time looking at that. You won't find too much information about that with other people because they don't, they don't understand it. And we've had a chance to go through and to understand and to seek to realize what's going on there. And why God's going to do that. And why it's necessary to have this interval. And we see that now much more clearly, I think. So we reached the end of this book. And as I got to the end, I thought, if I was going to pick two points, just two points from this magnificent book in all 12 chapters, what is it would I pick that would maybe be able to help me as much as possible in finishing strong. And the first one I call the critical point in Daniel's life. The critical point. It's found in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself from the king's cho- with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. we focusing on that phrase, Daniel made up his mind. Now I want you to think about it. Being marched from Jerusalem to Babylon in the first deportation, I'm certain that he went on foot. It probably took two months. That gives you a little time to think, to examine what you're going to do when you get there. And Daniel made a decision. 
at that critical point in his life, his decision was made before any temptation or test really came. Daniel chose not to allow temptations or tests that were certain to come his way to interfere with his relationship with the Lord. He knew that in order for his life to be useful to the one who called him as a prophet and a servant of the Most High, he must become radically obedient to him. Daniel came to recognize that. That was a critical point in his life. I want you to think about that. Some people could say, well, my life is over. My life is ruined. I'm just going to be a slave the rest of my life. Not Daniel. He said, the Lord's going to put me somewhere where he's going to use me. And I need to make sure I keep myself pure. No compromise. Now, it's true that Daniel made this decision, let's say, when he was 16. Does that mean it's too late for us to make such a decision? No. The critical point is now. What are you going to choose? Do you think that our nation will become more anti-Christian in the future? Do you think that your property could be seized because you're an enemy of the state? Do you think that you could be put in re-education camps so that you will learn how to be a proper human being? It's coming. Well, so we've got to be prepared to understand this critical point so that no matter what the most powerful king, president, court, or whatever on earth commands, we refuse to compromise. We've got to learn that. Daniel also came to understand something else. That just like Joseph before him, Esther after him, God had placed him where he was for a particular purpose. Joseph had some difficult times before he was finally elevated to where God wanted to use him. Oh, absolutely. Being in an Egyptian prison is not fun. Esther, you know, some people don't think about this. She was trained in the harem for six months before she was given to the king. What did that training involve? Well, Esther was put in that position so that God could use her. Are you allowing your surroundings to determine how you invest your life? Or instead, are you allowing God place you in the surroundings He wants so He can use you in the way He plans? That's the critical point. Now the second. God's response to Daniel and hopefully to us. In Daniel 9.23, an angel by the name of Gabriel shows up in Daniel's living quarters. And he says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now, some translators translate the phrase highly esteemed as greatly beloved. Now, it's Gabriel who's sharing this with Daniel. Where did Gabriel get this? Who is this guy Gabriel again? If you look in Luke 1, 19, it explains it. Gabriel explains himself. The angel answered Zacharias and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Gabriel was standing in the presence of God 
When God said, the command is this, go to my servant Daniel, who is highly esteemed by me, and tell him these things. So who was it who highly esteemed Daniel? God. Because of his commitment to a life free of compromise, a life built around radical obedience. Isn't that what we would like to have said about us? This, could there be any more welcome words than those to hear from one's creator? You know, Daniel was trying to figure out what was going to happen to his people. So he did what he always did. He prayed. And God dispatched Gabriel to bring this message. There had been times before this event when Daniel's love and, and faithfulness toward his God had been put to the test. And now Daniel wanted answers. And his Lord was quick to provide God wants to answer prayers of those whose heart is completely His. Do you ever say to yourself, you know, God doesn't really always answer my prayers. You know, these other people I know, that He answers there, but He doesn't answer mine, it seems like. Especially this one that was so important to me. God always wants to answer and respond to the prayers of a man or woman whose heart is totally His. No, you're just making that up, Doug. The Bible doesn't really say that, does it? Oh, what does it say in 2 Chronicles 16, 9? For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So you can't count on media sources or public opinion or politicians to tell you the truth, but you can always count on the one true God. Your answer may not come as quickly as you want, but it will come unless you lose heart and quit. Don't lose heart and quit. You say, is that really a a thing, lose heart and quit? Is it really a thing? You know, well, let's, let's look at Hebrews. I look at Hebrews chapter 12, but I'm going to, I'm going to start in verse one of chapter 12. There, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Now, verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that... Now, wait a second. Jesus, the saying here that Jesus endured the cross so that... So that what? So you could be saved? That's not what it says. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He died so that you would not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father... I thank you so much for this magnificent book that you have given to us and this wonderful man, Daniel, who you gave us as an example. Thank you for doing that for us and still allowing his influence to reach our lives. Now I pray, Father, as we get ready for next week that you will help me as I study and we prepare this new set of lessons. And thank you for letting me teach this morning without coughing too much. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And it's so good to be back. Amen.